0: Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message, or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church family. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig, and if you have a Bible, please open it with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This, oh! Oh! Oh my goodness, if you are a child, there's children's church. I'm so sorry. So, Pastor Mark's in the back. Gives adults time to find Ephesians. This morning, we are looking at a passage of Scripture that the old Baptist preachers call the Turtle and the Fence Post Passage. And maybe you've heard that phrase before, but if you're like, most people, you have no idea what that means. Like, leave it to the South to come up with these odd, pithy sayings. So, like, I went to seminary in Kentucky, and I remember one time someone they're like, we have a saying here in the South. And they said, it was something like, if you throw a rock into a pile of dogs, the one that barks is the one that got hit. And my friend from New Jersey said... Oh, I think in New Jersey, we just say, "methinks the lady doth protest too much. Like, they just, the South just has all kinds of their own sayings, their own vernacular, and this is one of those odd Southern sayings. The turtle and the fence posts. I have no idea, like, what social setting you'd use the situation in, but here's how the saying goes. If you're walking on an old country road, and you see a fence post with a turtle up on it, you know that that turtle didn't climb up there. You know that that turtle didn't fly up there. Somebody put... That turtle up there. And this passage is the turtle in the fence post passage. You and I are somewhere we don't belong. We are in the throne room of heaven. And so this passage right now sets up for us what the Christian life is like. The Christian life is not a battle to be a good person, it's not a battle to get your behavior in order to look good, to be religious. The Christian life is a battle for your identity. Who are you? Will you believe that you are who God says you are? This is my absolute favorite paragraph that the Apostle Paul has ever written. There are riches in this paragraph, and we need to believe it. Paul is going to tell you of an amazing status that you have if you believe in Jesus. And the question that this passage wants you to wrestle with this morning is, will you believe it? Will you trust God's word, or are you going to let yourself be the authority about who you are? So let's read this passage, and then I'm going to ask for God's help, all right? Here's Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can brag. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear. God, I pray that you would be merciful to me, a sinner. To Help me get out of the way and just proclaim your word, and we pray that your spirit would arrive in this place and awaken our hearts to see the truth of who we are, of what your word says about us, but that ultimately understanding who we are would help us to look away from ourselves and to Jesus. God, I pray that you do that for every person in this room this morning. It's in his name. ask all these things. Amen. No one talks to you more than you. You are engaged in a conversation regularly with yourself. See, we're all interpreters. Things happen to us and we interpret what's going on. We're all living in a narrative. We're all telling ourselves a story that helps us to make sense of the world that we're living in. That's why two people growing up in the same neighborhood can have two nearly identical things happen to each other. They interpret them totally differently. We talk to ourselves, you do it, I do it. There's always a constant conversation happening in your mind. Marilyn Robinson, the author of The Gilead, which I haven't read, I'm just pretending to. It's a little, I'll get there. She says this about the stories we tell ourselves. We often tell ourselves cruel little narratives, cruel little myths. See, like, we don't accurately see ourselves... We, uh, we look through our life story, and sometimes we turn up the failures really high. Sometimes we turn up the successes really high. We're like, this is a really big deal. And this passage, what Paul is trying to do right now as just a gifted pastor, as someone who is deeply invested in soul care, is trying to say, no, 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 no. Here's how it really is. Here's something you can make sense of your life through. And so he's honest about it. He wants us to first look at our sin, who we were, he wants us to understand who we are, and then he wants us to really own that identity. And so this question this morning is that we want to wrestle with is do we believe God's word or not? Uh, Martin Luther, uh, one of his most famous sayings, it's often misquoted, it's very difficult to understand. Uh, he said this to his very anxious like, assistant. So like during the Reformation, Luther's Batman Philip Melanchthon is like Robin, so he says this to his Robin, he says, sin boldly, and like everyone hears that, and it's like, what in the world is Martin Luther saying? Is he telling us to just like, ooh, like let's crack open the Jack and Coke, and just like go crazy? What does he mean, sin boldly? Well, Philip Melanchthon was a very anxious and nervous person, as nervous and anxious and what a wreck Luther was, Melanchthon was worse, and this is what he's saying to Philip, he's saying, this is the Craig Kidder paraphrase, of an ancient German text. Keep in mind, I don't know any German. This is, but this is what he says to him. He says, look, man, you're a sinner, okay? And the sooner that you own that, the sooner that you grip, come to grips with that reality, the sweeter the gospel will be to you. And so that's what Paul is trying to help us do. He's trying to help us see ourselves as to who we were. Look at verse one. Look at what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. This is not a present reality. He's opened the book up by saying, blessed is the God and Father who has blessed us. Blessing in the Bible, it just means flourishing. You cannot flourish if you are dead. So Paul is not saying this is who you are right now. He's not bringing up your sin so that you feel guilty. When the Bible is pointing out your sin, it's not to just like let you wallow in some shame and guilt. That is not honoring to God to just live in this constant low-grade shame. What he's trying to do is to say he's building a contrast. This is who you were, and now look where you are. It's bad news so that good news is really good and great. And like I said, Paul is a super gifted pastor. He's speaking the language of his people. So like when we look at verses 1 through 3, And when Paul's saying, hey, don't forget who you were, this is what he's trying to say. You were these people, you're not this anymore, but he's speaking to them in the way that they saw the world. It's it's not how we see the world, so we need to unpack it a little bit. He says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Past tense. This is not who you are, this is who you were. Well, you're dead. What What does that look like? You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he says this, that you were also lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind. He's describing three things that what it means to be dead. He's saying this, you live in this place called the world, and you're following that course. You're following the prince of the power of the air, and you're also following your flesh. And to really understand what Paul's saying, we're going to look through that backwards We're going to start with the flesh then we're going to work to the devil then we're going to get to the world but it's really hard for us we all have like a shared vocabulary when we talk about like the world and the devil and i think there's like an old snl skit where they talked about like the devil made me do it that's not what paul's trying to do here he's not trying to say hey look the problem's out there yes sin's a real thing but it's not you it's out there the devil the world all these things are bad Uh, What Paul's trying to say is this. If Paul could, he would quote Michael Jackson to them and say, look, I'm talking to the man in the mirror. You are the problem with the world. That's what Paul is trying to help us see. And he explains it in a language they understand. See, ancient people, both uh, Jews and Greeks, saw the world like this. There was heaven above, that's where God lived, and there's earth, that's where we live. And in between heaven and earth, there's a space called the air. Okay, so Heaven and earth are separated by air. Okay? You're like, I, I mean, I guess. Well, that's not how they saw it totally differently. So, heaven is where God lives. That's the abode, uh, in the Greeks, the abode of the gods. Zeus is up there. And the air, that's where the demigods live. They're above us, but they're not quite in heaven. They're demigods. It's actually where we get demigods, is where we eventually get the English word demons. And so Paul climbs inside the worldview of his readers and explains the world how they saw it so that they can understand what's really happening with sin. See, when, when we talk about your dead and your trespasses and sins, immediately that throws like a mental image into many of our minds. Like, what does it mean to be dead? Well, it means I'm lying on a table, I'm not moving. But What Paul's trying to do is he's not just, he's trying to help you rethink death. It's not just that you're like some kind of cadaver. He's trying to help you redefine what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. And at the ultimate heart of it, what he's saying is there's a separation. Death at its core is separation from God, the source of life, the author of life, true beauty, meaning, we're separated from that. And Paul's saying that we're not just, there's, a, there's this thing in between us, the spiritual forces at work. Uh, And so what Paul is trying to help you see is like, hey, sin is not just you trying to be your best self, you mess up. Oh, don't worry about it. You're actually going with a flow that's been established long before we were even around, and that flow at its heart is rebellion, rebellion against God. So he's trying to say this, this heaven and earth and what separates it, we are stuck under the lordship of Satan. Whoa, that just sounds crazy and wild. What's, What's he talking about? Well, let's start to unpack that from, let's go backwards through it by looking first at the flesh. Uh, look at what he says uh, in here, that we all once lived, in verse 3, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Here's what he's saying is this, theologians like to talk about this thing called the Noahic effect of sin. That doesn't mean that like Noah had anything to do with sin, it means your mind our minds are fallen. And have you ever seen someone do this? Like I've I've seen this. It's very tragic and it's very difficult to understand. Someone makes a decision that's insane. Like what are you thinking? And then they bend the facts. They rearrange the facts to help it affirm that what they decided. So for example, sometimes this happens in like church settings. Someone's like, "Hey, you know, I've really prayed long and hard about this. I'm going to abandon my family, leave my kids cuz God wants me to be happy. And so here's what Paul is saying is at work in that. You, you have these desires, he says these lusts, and you have your mind, and you rearrange the facts so to get at what you really want. And that's how we all are. Paul's saying again, this is not a problem out there. This is not just like super bad people. This is not like the Joseph Stalins of the world. This is all of us. We rationalize our sin. We want things and we bend the facts to get at what we really want. This is why people can compromise core values, core beliefs, and it doesn't make any sense. Because they, what they want doesn't line up with reality, and so they bend reality. They justify themselves. And that's actually on a course. That sets you on a course where you're in this living in this land where the devil is the ruler. Paul's really actually just in new words describing what happened in Eden. It all comes back to Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Eve met a serpent and the serpent said, you can be like God. Something Eve wanted. And so he bent the facts. He said this, look, like if you eat this, you'll know good and evil. And Eve wanted that. Adam wanted that. So they're like, okay. And they they stepped out into that. When they made that step, they stepped into this world ruled by the devil. And as modern people, we don't like to think about the devil. It's kind of a weird thing. A lot of our thoughts about Satan are really shaped by, like, kids' movies. Like, there's a guy with a French mustache. He wears red. He's got a pitchfork. Uh, and so it's really hard to talk about the devil because it's like, well, that's just an odd thing for us to think about. Like, the devil? Like, what is, at the heart of what it means, what Satan actually means is both accuser and deceiver. We're living in a world of deceit, where Satan rules that world. And this is, he's powerful. Look at what it says uh, in verse 3, that he was, I don't know, 2. Let's go to 2, actually. Uh, that following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's at work in the sons of disobedience. He's doing stuff, and it's working. So not only are we just deceived by our desires and we bend things, we're actually on this course and trajectory uh, where this is like deceit. The deceiver is leading us down this course. And he says, we're not just following that, we're following the way that everyone else has gone before, the world. Uh, The world is not bad all the time in the Bible. God made the world. It was good. Creation is good. Paul's not trying to get you to be mad at, like, people who come up with ideas and who think about things. Paul's trying to say this. Hey, just the natural course, what he says later, we were by nature. The natural course of people is rebellion against God. And, And, like, how, so Paul's explaining this to people in words that they would understand. How would we explain this to our culture, which is a very different setting. We live in a very secular, anti-supernatural setting. What's what's Paul getting, how should we explain it? Here's what he's saying. Unbelief is a real thing, and there are real doubts that people have. I don't want to say like, hey, believe, believe that Jesus rose from that. That's super easy to believe. We want to let people wrestle through real doubts, but here's what Paul's saying. Underneath everything, under the doubts, under the real questions, is rebellion. Unbelief, at its heart, is rebellion against God. It's saying this, I don't need a boss. I don't need a Lord. I'm fine. You see this everywhere. Uh, one of my favorite singers, I was reading an interview with him in Rolling Stone many years back, not a Christian at all. I don't even think he knows the Bible. And he said, yeah, like, I, I thought about this Jesus thing, um, but I really just don't want anyone telling me what to do. That's that rebellion that's underneath that. We don't see Jesus as a loving father who cares. We see this as just somebody who wants to get in our business, and we say no thanks. And what Paul's actually saying here is that we would rather live under the dominion of Satan, which is bad. Like, I don't know, whatever you think of the devil, that's not a good space to be in. We'd rather be there than being under the dominion and care of God. And now. There's, there's consequences with this. Here's what Paul says. Uh, we were by nature children of wrath as were the rest. Uh, the Catholic theologian Clark Pinnock uh, once said, and it's such a, a true point, just like hits you. You're like, He's like, the problem with evangelicals is that they don't like talking about wrath. They're embarrassed by it. He's totally right. Like, I mean, how many church plants have you seen? They launch, they go out, and like the very first Sunday, they're like, all right, guys, we're talking about God's wrath. This is what we're really jazzed and excited about. We would all be like, that's really odd. Well, part of the reason that we struggle so much with God's wrath, we don't like to think about it, it makes us uncomfortable, is because that we make God's wrath in our image. Maybe you have like an angry dad who like, if he didn't get things right, he'd slam the table. That's what we think God's wrath is like a divine temper tantrum it's 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 God just having this passion overflowing and he's mad at sinners that's not at all the portrait that Paul's painting here Paul is painting a portrait of wrath that's connected to God's love uh, wrath in the Bible is God's good response to death to sin to brokenness it's an extension of his love it's the sharp edge of God's love imagine you came home from work on Monday. And there's police cars all in your house. And there's a helicopter going up, up you know, just hovering overboard. And you come in and the police are like, hey, somebody has kidnapped your spouse. Okay? But we have one of the kidnappers. They're in your kitchen. We've got them tied to a chair. We're beating them up and we're getting all the info out of them. And imagine you were like, fellas, I had a really long day. Okay? I would really just like nothing more than to sit down and catch up on my shows I got some emails to write. Can we deal with that after, maybe? The natural conclusion that those police officers would have is that you do not love your spouse. Anger is a, re- a good and right response when done well by God. It is a good and right response to sin, to injustice, to what's wrong with the world. And what's wrong with the world? Us we are dead in sin. We, are, we were the crowning achievement of God's creation, and now we're ruining his creation. We are just messing things up. We are ruining relationships, and God is right to be upset. And this is, this is like crazy news, too, what Paul says here. He says, look at verse 1. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But then look at verse 3. We were all dead. Who's that you and we? The you is the Gentiles, most people in this room, and the we is the Jews. And what he's saying is this, people who had God's law, who had God's instruction, who knew better, we were just as lost as you were. Here's what Paul's saying, religion can't get you out of this problem, can't make you alive, no matter how many times you go to church, no matter how much you read your Bible, no matter how much justice you are doing in the world, religion can't make you alive. Likewise, rebellion can't make you alive. Drinking yourself silly, sleeping with strangers, all those things, neither of those can make you alive, and both of them incur the wrath of God. Then we get verse 4. This is who we were, but God, being rich in mercy. Let's pause for just a second. This is an incredibly important but in scripture. What happens when Paul is saying but? He's saying not this, but this. He's doing a compare and contrast. He's saying this, you're like this, but God's like this. And here's what he's doing for us. He's saying your hope, my hope, is that God is not like us. We love people who are like us. We want to be around people who make us look good, who serve us well. God is rich in mercy. What does that mean, rich in mercy? Well, in the Greek world, we knew that there was a very simple line that if you got above that line, you were considered rich. And it just meant you had so much money, you didn't need to work. Here's what he's saying. God is rich in compassion. God is wealthy in empathy. God has more mercy than he needs. And for who? People like him? Good people? No. His enemies. While we were this God was this, and that gets us to our next statement. That gets us to what he did for us, how he responded for his enemies. This is what he did. There are three verbs in section 4 through 7. These three verbs govern the whole paragraph. This is what God did for dead sinners. He says this in verse um, 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did three things for you. He made you alive, he raised you up, and he seated you with Christ Jesus. Um, In the 1970s, a very nice guy from the south ran for president. His name was Jimmy Carter. And he started throwing around these phrases that no one had ever really heard before. Phrases like, born again, saved, and all of a sudden, all these odd phrases, these, the Christian vernacular, entered into the public's imagination. And ever since then, people say these things, I'm saved, and they have no idea what it means. Well, Paul right here gives you a helpful definition of what it means to be saved. He says this, he says this, uh, you have been made alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be made alive. Death is the problem. We were dead. Now we are alive. And he says this: You have been saved. That's super important. Sometimes grammar can change your life. You will not be saved. You not. not, We might be saved. You have been saved. That happened. It's done. It's all over. You've been made alive. It's a done deal. Even if you don't feel like it, if your trust is in Jesus, it's totally true, and it's the truest thing about you. Your failures are true, but they're not super true. This is super true. This is what God says is true about you. Now, if we can think back a little bit, do you remember our image that we had of the world, the Greeks and the the ancient people thought? We had heaven up here, we had air in between, and we had earth down here, okay? Do you remember that? here's what happens next. He raised us up and seated us in the heavens. What's he saying? Well, first, before we get back to the picture, here's what he's saying. Look at 121. Far above, so um, this is, oh, excuse me, 120. This is what he says. That he worked in Christ, he's talking about that power, that resurrection power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. Does that sound familiar? The same, if you write in your Bible, if you're that type of person, write in the side margins, union with Christ. What happened to Jesus has now happened to his people. We've been raised and seated. Now let's go back. That image. We we were under the dominion and control of Satan. And now we have been raised and we are above Satan. The power of sin has been diminished. Let's keep reading in chapter 1, the end of it. This is what he says about Jesus. This is verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. That's victory. That's the battle is over, won, and done. And that's true for you if you trust Jesus. Where, where did Jesus put us? Where, where exa- what is exactly does it mean to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Well, if you, uh, if you flip back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision where he walks into this place that Paul's describing and he heads into there, and he sees, it says, the Lord high and lifted up, and there's all these angels, and they're saying, holy, 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 and this is what, if Isaiah was, saw that vision at the time of Paul's writing, this is what would happen next, and then he would look around, and he would see all of us there. That's status. We, if you trust in Jesus, you are in the throne room of God, you have, been, you have been invited to the party, not just invited to the party. You have a spot at the table, a place you do not deserve to be. It sounds crazy to say, but Jesus exalted us when he rescued us. Um, part of the problem of calling this sermon like you are a trophy is like there's a ton of stereotypes about trophies. So like some of them I resent, like, oh, in California, everybody gets a trophy. Like, no, no, no. But, like, do trophies even actually mean anything anymore? Well, one of the ways you know a trophy means something is if when it goes missing, do people care? Right? So uh, the World Cup trophy was stolen once. Uh, England was hosting the World Cup for the first time in 1966, and they had the trophy. They were supposed to keep it at their headquarters, but they were allowed to move it around a little bit, and it got stolen. And it threw the country into a national uproar. Why? Well, because Europeans love football. Like, not like Americans love football. Like, Europeans really violently love football. And they're finally getting the the chance to, like, host the World Cup. Something super-duper important. And they lose the trophy. It's super embarrassing. They look like idiots. And here's the thing. All these rules are like, it has to be an armed guard around it. And then it turns out some of the details start to come out. It was a 70-year-old man who was by himself, and he was on his lunch break, and he came back, and it was gone. It was super embarrassing. Why? Because trophies mean something. Trophy the the trophy itself was worth three thousand pounds. A dog found it, a guy was on a walk with a dog, they found it, they gave him a five thousand pound reward. Why would they do that? Because it it didn't matter what the the actual trophy was. It it was the value of what it stood for. It was a symbol of pride. Look, what does God when God makes a trophy, what is it? Well, it was people. Genesis one and two, God makes everything. And he slows down when it comes to day six, and he really focuses on people. Men and women are the crowning achievement of God's creation. And then they fell. The trophy was lost. What did God do to get that trophy back? He himself entered the broken creation. He was made broken for the creation. He rescued it back, and now he's put it in his, on his trophy display. Look at verse seven. This is where this says, if you don't believe me, look at verse seven. So that... People start sentences with so that because they say, hey, why did this happen? So that. What happened? We've been exalted. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. You are a trophy of God's grace. What what, what the picture Paul's trying to paint is that we've been lifted up above Satan and above the spiritual world and, and above the world so that everyone turning looks back and says, wait, who are they? They don't belong there. And God says, I'm putting my grace on display. This group of rebels here, this is what I can do. Look at that. Trophies say what we value. Look, the law, God's commands are good. Paul says that. There's no trophy for the law. There's a trophy, though, for God's riches and his grace. And he wants you to own this status. Uh, The Puritans often get a bad rap. Uh, John Owen maybe gets a really bad rap, just being dry and stuffy. So I want you to keep in mind, this, this right here, this exhortation is coming from a dry, stuffy person, okay? You can no way more trouble or burden him, God, by your unkindness In not believing, God loves you. Let me say that again. You can no way more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness and not believing God loves you. Why did he do this? He tells us in verse four. Because of the great love with which he loves us. This is who God says you are. Question that you have to wrestle with today is, do I believe that? While there are other true voices highlighting your failure, saying this is who you are, You're just a screw-up. You're you're a fake. This isn't true for you. This is what God's Word says about you. Will you believe it? Look, Look what happened last time we didn't believe God's Word. It threw the whole world into chaos in that garden. Now will you believe God's Word, that He loves you, that you are a trophy of His grace. The truest thing about you is not your failure. The truest thing about you is not that you just can't get it together. The truest thing about you is that you are in the throne room, Yahweh's throne room, and he's showing you off. That's the truest thing about you. And Paul wants you to own this identity. It's not like, ah, you know, if you really want to be a blessed Christian, you can believe this, but if you just want to live like a normal Christian life, don't really worry about it. No, 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 no. Paul wants you to own this identity, but it also comes with a warning. About owning this identity. He wants you to, to own this identity, but not own this identity. He's telling you to beware of both pride and false humility. Both beware of pride and false humility. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, some of those popular verses in scripture, but I just want to like, there's nothing wrong with, I sound like I'm like going to like destroy, I'm not, there's scripture, I'm not, but here's what happens. Uh, how many sentences do you start with the word Because, so like for example, if I were to come up to you and say, oh, because it was a great deal, and walk away, you'd be like, you know, I, I just feel like I'm missing a little bit of information here. And so Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we love it, you should love it, it's great, but it starts with a four, because, well, what, what, what's Paul saying? He's saying, because by grace we have been saved. Here's what he's saying, you're in this throne room, and, and it's amazing, it's this amazing new rich and awesome status, and it's true about you but you didn't get there on your own. You don't deserve to be there. This is the same thing that Moses said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 9 uh, when they're headed into the promised land. He says this, don't say in your heart after the Lord your God has cleaned out the people who are in there. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. That's exactly what Paul's trying to get at here. It's not because of your righteousness that you are in this exalted, new and exciting place. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from you. You're not the reason God did this. God didn't do this because he saw something impressive in you and says, we're going to save that one. This is just his kindness and his love toward undeserving people. Supposed to protect us from pride. But Paul's a really good pastor, and he knows our tendencies. We can so easily, like, okay, I'm going to rubber band to the other side. I'm so undeserving. I'm so awful. I'm so terrible. This is where I should live. And Paul's also trying to protect your heart from that. He's saying, beware of false humility. That's verse 10. What? For, remember that, because we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's Paul getting at here? He's trying to root your identity in the fact that you really are a new creation. You're something new. God has really already done this in your life. It's new. And so if you're a new creation, you're going to start doing awesome things. So just think for a second. You have a selfish person over here and a selfless person over here. The selfish person, you're talking to them and all they're doing is they're just waiting for their turn to talk. They're just looking at you and they're just, you can see. They're like, all right, I'm going to say, this okay, I'm not listening. Talk to the selfless person over here and they're like empathizing and they care and they're almost more upset about it than you are and they're like, hey, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Like, what, what can I do to help you? Well, who are you going to want to hang out with? You're going to want to hang out with a selfless person. So we've been transformed, we've been given new hearts, new desires, we're going to start doing awesome things. And, and Paul's saying, look, that's totally true, own that. Because while you were dead in sins, it says this, God prepared those good things for you to do. That's the, that, this is all of grace. So don't, don't own it, but don't own it. He's saying this, he's saying like, don't be prideful, don't be like, I got me here, I'm so righteous. And then don't be like, oh, I'm so, I don't, I'm not really this. He wants you to live in that sweet spot in between. Um, Paul says famously, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This grace comes to us through faith, through trust. We don't naturally believe this or think this about ourselves. This is not something that you wake up and you're like, I'm a trophy. This is just like nobody does that, okay? We wake up and life is hard. We're aware of our failures. And it takes faith to really believe this about yourself. And so the author, Karen Swallow Pryor, she said this amazing statement. She says, this, look, develop habits that can strengthen your faith. Our habits can strengthen our faith. Don't miss this. This is not my habits will give me faith, my habits will make me righteous, but my habits can cultivate a heart that believes this, that trusts this, that receives this grace. So what are some habits that we can do? rhythms we can develop to help us cultivate faith well i just want to give you four it's really one but it's four we're just gonna one would have felt lazy first thing we need to do is speak truth to ourselves this is true what we just read god's word is true the voices that you have talking about yourself about who you are that's not true so you really need to start speaking truth to yourself i feel this way But this is what scripture says I hear. That's hard. It's a discipline. I mean, you're going to feel crazy for a while. Everything in me feels like this is true, that I am a failure. No, no, no. But God says this about me. That's more true. You need to speak truth to yourself. How do we speak truth to ourselves? Well, we need to know truth. We need to read scripture. And look, just because you read the Bible a lot doesn't mean you read it well. Okay? Like, Americans are terrible at reading the Bible. We're super selfish. Here's what we do. All right, I don't feel like reading my Bible. God, just like, like let something jump out the page at I me. Mean, like, I just need a spiritual buzz. that will get me through the day. Say something to me, God. Okay? That's an, an inherently selfish way to read the Bible. The Bible's not about you. There is a hero of the story. And when you look away from yourself to that hero, you get the help you need. So read the Bible, but remember the Bible isn't about you. And one great way to practice this is to pray through the psalms. Pray through the psalms. The psalms help us do all these disciplines together. So uh, David has a psalm where he says, Even if I make my bed in Sheol. He I don't know if you know where Sheol is. It's not Orlando, Florida. It's not a nice place, okay? And like I don't know if you know why someone would make their bed in Sheol. It's because they're going to stay there for a while. They're going to live there. He saying, even if I reside in this terrible hellhole. Where can I go from your presence? You're with me. Has anyone lived in what they feel like is a hell hole? Does it feel like God is with you? No. You need to pray the Psalms. You need to say, God, I am in hell. I am experiencing this awful, terrible thing. And here's what this says. I can't escape you even here. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Help me to believe it. This is true, not how I feel. And you slowly start to just take your heart and you, just, you start to direct it toward God truth. Pray the Psalms. And the last thing is doubt your doubts. When doubts pop up, well, yeah, what Craig is saying is true, yeah, but probably not true for me. We just give that so much credence. Like, yeah, I mean, I have a doubt. It's probably accurate. Start doubting your doubts. Look, like, this is not a natural way to feel that you are a trophy of God's grace. You are going to very easily and very often slide into feeling not like this because of doubt. Start doubting your doubts. One of the amazing things about being a trophy is that uh, no one cares about the trophy. I don't know if you've ever had anybody like take you into their trophy room and be like, look at all these things I won, and they start telling stories. The stories are where it gets good, like the piece of metal no one cares about. Being a trophy gives us tremendous value and, and honor, but it also frees us it frees us from having to prove that we matter. And I, I just want to close with this. Uh, the comedian Jay Leno, he, was, uh, he recently told a story about a time that he was performing in Vegas. And he was waiting in his hotel lobby. And he was watching and a lot of the hotel workers started coming and they took down this display of Elvis. They just started packing it up and putting it away. He was watching it for a little bit and he came up and he said, Hey guys, like, what, are you, what are you doing? Where, where are you taking this? And they said, Oh, uh, we're putting it putting away. And he said, Why? nobody knows who Elvis is anymore, and Jay Leno was totally struck. He was like, oh my goodness. If nobody remembers who Elvis is, what hope do I have that anyone's going to remember me? Look, everyone in this room, unless the Lord tarries, we're all going to die, and nobody's going to remember us. Like, I I don't even know who my great-grandparents are. Like, I I probably should. I don't know. I don't even really care. I know that sounds terrible, but you don't, you don't either, okay? We are told to matter, we're told to build our brand. We're gonna die, and no one's gonna care. This passage frees us, it gives us tremendous meaning. There is coming a day. The whole universe is working toward this moment. When Jesus is inaugurated King. And Paul says in another letter that every knee is gonna bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're going to be there. Not in, in like this fearful, terrifying way. We're there as the trophy case. We are there on display. That matters. People are going to remember that. This frees you from that pressure. This frees you and helps you look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Will you believe you are who God says you are? Let's pray. Father, we need help. We are so prone to not believe you. God, this feels unnatural. But Lord, I pray that you would give us grace, that you would help us to trust your word, that your word is true, and that who you say we are is more true than who we say we are. God, I pray that we be a community who sees that grace, who loves grace, and makes that the heartbeat of our lives. And that we would uh, echo the great hymn writers that redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. let ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.